for a well-supported product, it is more secure to go with open source than to go with a black box that you don't see the code base. That is much less secure than an open source product with thousands of contributors, everybody who has a vested stake in it. The DoD blows my mind at how awesome everyone is, but as, as many of us know, it's really hard to retain folks. The number one risk is always software. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Major Rob Slaughter, director of DOD's Platform One, about approaches to agility and DOD modernization, leading millennials and Gen Zers, and the future of software. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thanks for talking to me, Rob. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me. What is Platform One? It's an interesting, impactful program. Can you tell our listeners really what is it all about and really how did you get here? Yeah, so so if you think about uh, DevSecOps, it's, it's really trying to solve uh, two simultaneous problems. Uh, the first problem is that our, our DoD systems um, are not secure enough. Maybe we don't want to say how secure, but, but certainly we could, we could do a lot better. Um, but at the same time, we really struggle with continuous delivery. Um, and many times these are two competing uh, sort of domains. You can become more cyber secure, which many times slows you down, or you can focus on delivery, which, which many times uh, leaves you open for different cyber vulnerabilities. Um, and so DevSecOps is really at looking at those two problems and saying, there's a way to address both of these at the same time. You're actually able to be both more secure, but then also deliver more frequently and more reliably. So how did you start? What inspired you? What made you want to do it? So, so let me uh, definitely want to clarify. I, I, am, I, I have definitely not personally started Platform One. Uh, there was definitely uh, you were the founder, CEO, uh, head man in charge, everything, right? No, so uh, you know, I definitely, I definitely want to clarify as much as I can uh, how many people sort of make this possible. Um, on our side, uh, when when Platform One uh, formed, it was really a unification of, of really three different things going on. Um, it was a unified platform and level up um, down in uh, Air Force HNC. Um, it was Space Camp, where, where I came from, down at Colorado Springs, and it was Nicholas Shalon out of originally OSD, um, but then had, a re, you know, very, very recently when we formed, had been named the, the chief software officer. Um, for, from my view, I'd say there's probably about 20 to 30 people, at least, uh, who could say that they're, they're founders of, of Platform One. So, so I'm definitely one of several. However, we all pretty much have the same vision, um, which is just that there's a lot of people out there that are passionate about writing software and doing the right thing from a DOD standpoint. And it's just about banding together and finding those people who actually get it. Um, and, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, I probably thought that, hey, almost none of these folks, quote, get it. Um, but as we started forming Platform One, what we realized is that there's a ton of folks out there that actually, you know, like I said, get it. 
And, and so it leads you to say, like, what does it mean to, to quote, get it? What get it means is that the, the DOD can no longer um, talk about not owning certain levels of their baseline. Um, a lot of the weapon systems that we deal with uh, are going to be around for 50, um, sometimes 100 years. You know, the average Air Force aircraft is actually older than the average Air Force airman, um, which, is, which is crazy to think about. You know, think about what technology looked like 30 years ago. And then, and then say to yourself, some of the weapon systems we work on are going to live twice that length of time. There, you know, there, there are going to be weapon systems around that, that our grandchildren um, aren't going to see the end of because of how long they last. Um, when you start thinking about weapon systems in that context, what you realize is that there are certain level of technical details that, that we, the government, must be intimately familiar with. And, and, and ultimately, that's one of the biggest things about Platform One is it's an organic government team with partnerships across the commercial industry. Um, there's an awesome lineup coming up over the next couple of days with a lot of these commercial companies. Um, I hope you guys have time to, to listen some of, to some of them. Um, those are our partners. Uh, we can't do it um, this you know by ourselves. Like Platform One's not building a GFE stack per se, uh, but we're taking commercial COTS and commercial open source products and making them optimized for air-gapped environments. For the tech illiterate like myself, can you explain GFE stack just a little bit to our audience? Yeah, pretty, pretty wide range. Yeah, of course. So, so GFE uh, governments furnished equipment, um, which which many times has a pretty negative connotation uh, with it, because you would think a anytime the government is furnishing something uh, for you, it's probably not the the best thing in the world. Um, but from a technology perspective, uh, when you actually look at the weapon systems themselves, there's not that much that differentiates them. And it doesn't really matter whether it's a tank or an airplane or a missile or, or an ops floor, you know, about 85% of that tech stack that makes that environment is, is the same. Um, and what the government has been doing over the course of many years is, is staffing these requirements on these individual programs and you know, paying a you know, competent prime contractor to execute that platform there for their mission specific system. Um, but what you realize is that those mission systems aren't that different. Um, there, there is the potential for the government to, to be experts on their own tech stack and to share that across platforms, uh, mainly because it accelerates programs, it, it's cost effective, and it massively reduces risks because you know it works because it's worked on other systems. I, I think that brings up a point that I kind of wanted to ask you about. So I think this is interesting because you said, you know, most Air Force platforms, a lot of these platforms are older than average airmen. And, you know, I was, I left the Navy almost nine years ago now and the Nimitz class carrier still out there was commissioned 10 years before I was even born. So I think, I think that brings up an interesting point do you think, what kind of benefits are there from making this a, a DOD venture and not just Air Force? From, from where I sit, I can't really tell the difference between a Navy system and an Army system. Um, and so I, I think the, the biggest thing is that m many times when you call something joint or when you go on a joint back, you know, venture, um, there's a hesitancy sometimes from, from you know, all of the services to sort of, uh, sort of back it. Um, we, we haven't seen that in the DevSecOps arena. We pretty much have seen the exact opposite um, because, like I said, the, there, there is no difference. Um, Navy, Army, Air Force, it doesn't really matter. Um, DOD, or Platform One started as, as a DOD organization. 
Um, you know, given, you know, I myself work for the Air Force, uh, but anyone we've talked to, the, the Navy, the Army, the Marines, uh, everybody has been uh, just as supportive as, as anyone else at any other service. Yeah, obviously the Navy has the best active service members and the Army creates the best civilians. I'm not biased at all. No, uh, fantastic. So so I'm kind of interested, you know, Platform One, like I said, highly impactful already. Can you tell us about some of the wins, you know, that you've had in the first year? Because I think that's that's important for a lot of these early ventures. We've seen it with a Softworks and an Afworks. What are some of your first wins um, in the first founding here? Yeah, sure. So, so our official kickoff date uh, was around January 9th of, of this year. That was when we sort of officially became Platform One. Um, as, as everybody knows, the, the COVID pandemic really sort of kicked it into gear um, sometime around the March um, timeframe. Um, and uh, I remember because I was actually at spring break um, with, my, with my kids and, and we uh, saw all this email traffic uh, between, you know, Nick and, and Dr. Roper and a bunch of, uh, you know, senior leaders across the Air Force uh, that said, hey, everyone's going telework and, and everyone's pretty much jumping on, you know, you know, Slack and other systems that, that are probably not approved. Um, we need you guys to, to deploy a chat application and, and we needed to do it in 48 hours. Um, and so ready, go. Um, and so that was, you know, I think a Sunday night, uh, you know, probably into Monday morning. Um, and, and so we took uh, a well-established application uh, called Mattermost that we are already been using internally um, and, and put that through our container hardening process um, known as the Iron Bank, uh, which used to be called DCAR, the DOD Common Artifact Repository, um, and, and pushed it through leveraging our CATO and actually stood that up in production um, at an impact level four, so FOU information in about 48 hours. Um, and then we um, started just spreading the word sort of organically. Um, and over the course of just about a week, um, we had 10,000 users. And, and within about two weeks, we had 50,000 users. Uh, we now have, you know, operational customers at Air Force like AMC um, that are using it for a variety of purposes. Uh, we ourselves use it. Um, there's a ton of folks across the DOD. We, we highly encourage it. Highly encourage it. Um, it's, it's definitely one of those um, how can you move fast? Um, the reason we really like that as a solution is it's actually a DoD system. And so if you look at what you know CVR um, is, is, is doing, it's really just a COT solution that they um, granted a waiver for, which is fine because folks are desperate. Um, and so like it makes sense. Um, but at the same time, when you're dealing with actual weapon system, no kidding operational mission things, that, that's probably not the tool you want to use. Um, and so it was important to us to just validate the fact that we could move quickly. Um, and so it was incredible to see, you know, in action. Um, it certainly ruined my spring break, um, but it was uh, definitely cool to be a part of. So you're saying you did not get enough margaritas for your spring break and now you need some some quarantinis. No, I, I think I still found a way to get plenty of margaritas, <laughs> but but there was maybe too much work going on. So that's that's a great example of what you guys are doing and taking you know, what, what really has been a catastrophic event and be, been able to launch the value uh, that exists within DoD Platform One. And so let's say everything goes according to plan. You guys hit every check mark 
uh, every milestone, every objective over the next decade, because I believe in you guys, and I know you will, what does the future force look like then? How does it look different because of DoD Platform 1? That's an awesome question. Couple things. First one, every airman, sailor, soldier, civilian should have the ability to write software at their desks. Um, and I don't care whether that's a laptop, whether that's on Nipper, anywhere the force goes, uh, you should have the ability to access an IDE and write software. Um, I have spent a, a career waiting for approvals uh, to finally get access to the right tools to write software. And by the time you get that access, it's time to basically rotate UPCA, UPCS, and then at your next assignment, you start the same journey. Um, that should be a day one thing. Um, every, you know, in the Air Force, we would say every airman codes. The, the place we see that, that has sort of the most potential there is actually the U.S. Space Force, um, mainly because all of their war fighting is going to be done through a, through a console. You know, that is truly a digital force and a digital force from the start. I'm not saying the other services um, aren't, you know, also digital enterprises, but, but the Space Force and, and General Raymond, in my opinion, gets it. You know, he understands that if our average employee doesn't understand software, then we are going to be at a disadvantage anytime we enter an engagement. And, and to me, that starts with access to tools. Um, and so I'd say we're successful. You know, you have a, a DoD CAT card, you have access to software tools and can write software. Second piece is not only can you write the software, but you can accredit and deliver it. Um, you know, are the CATOs that have been, um, you know, continuous authority to operate that that really is what the bread and butter at Platform One is, uh, is something that we believe the entire force um, has the ability to leverage. And so what we see is not only that you have access to the tools at your desk, but you can actually produce updates in production environments, you know, when it makes sense as you pass your CIC pipelines for the software tools that you're, that you're uh, familiar with. Um, and the third thing is that uh, almost every weapon system I've ever worked with, uh, the number one risk is always software. Um, and, and it really, at this point in time, it doesn't really matter what weapon system it is. It's always considered a software intensive program. Um, it, it's almost like there's not even this concept of a quote hardware intensive program because all the hardware interfaces max software. Um, all weapon systems, all future weapon systems are software based systems. And so when you ask yourself and you look over the last five or 10 years of all the eight ones that are coming through, their number one risk is always software. And when you actually dig in, the number one risk on the software layer is that they haven't really figured out how to accredit a platform. Um, they're struggling with both their accreditation and the fact of you know questions over, will it work? Will it run? Um, and so if platform one is successful, those organizations should at least have an easy button. So if they feel like hey, there's a lot of risk in my program because I don't know what, what my platform looks like. I don't know what my, my production environment looks like. There's at least an alternative that they can just press and say, hey, I'm just going to take what this is. I know it works. I know other systems are using it. And therefore, you're going to have massive risk reduction, you know, regardless of the program and regardless of the service. You know, one of the, one of the things I find interesting is you've talked before, when, when we've talked before, Rob, you talked about um, the amount of open source uh, work that's being done. So how do you deal with that, that dichotomy of 
all these great things are being developed um, in open source, then how do we deal with the security aspect of that? Because so many of the things we do have to be classified and so many of the systems have to be hardened. Yeah, great question. Um, so, so first off, not all open source products were created equal. Um, and so if you go on the internet and you grab some random open source project, like don't, like it, it doesn't always make sense. Um, for a well-supported product, it is more secure to go with open source than to go with a black box that you don't see the code base. You know, so let's let's take a you know a vendor COTS tool that might have you know 50 people who you may or may not even know working on the code base, releasing updates that you actually don't get eyes and ears on. Um, that is much less secure than an open source product with thousands of contributors, everybody who has a vested stake in it. Um, that is always going to be the more secure product. Um, but there's a tipping point. And the tipping point occurs when the open source product isn't well supported. And so the biggest thing I can say is it's not open source is 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 better or worse. It's well supported open source is actually quite secure, actually more secure than most of our systems. Unsupported open source or maybe open source projects with, um, you know, maybe a collection of individuals that, that maybe, you know, from countries who maybe don't get along with us, um, you should probably not use. Um, if you're ever confused over what to use or what not to use, you can actually go to the Iron Bank, the Iron Bank website, DCOR. Um, we accredit and approve those open source projects. So if you're ever, you know, concerned and want to use something, you can actually work with Platform One. Uh, Platform One can accredit that open source product. And, and then you know it comes with, you know, some level of maturity. Um, you know, there's, there's normally a background check over, um, some of the contributors or the companies that are working on the projects. Um, it's not that all open source is okay, but some of it is is very secure. You all are really steeped in everything software, obviously. What do you think the future of software looks like? Is it is software-defined radio something that's kind of an early indicator of more things becoming software-defined, uh, or is that just a one-off? You know, as, as mentioned before, everything is becoming um, software. Um, a lot of a lot of the the, re the only reasons we haven't seen uh, I think the you know a lot of the momentum completely turn over is literally just how old the weapon systems are. Um, and if if you think about you know some of the things that you'd like to do, and so for example, like on the news right now, uh, you have an F-16 pilot going up against an AI um, in the air, which is which is awesome. But now let's say for example, the AI is awesome. Like, holy smokes, like, you know, like, oh, my gosh, how do we get the AI in the actual cockpit? Well, it turns out the F-16 has some older hardware. You know why? Because the F-16 is rather old. And so you'd be talking probably multiple iterations of a hardware update um, before the weapon system itself could support the software necessary to do that. And so I would say that this software revolution, which, which we're already a part of now, becomes everything is software as the hardware starts to get upgraded. And as more and more weapon systems get modern hardware, then that's when that tipping point occurs. Um, otherwise, it, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like it's analog per se, um, but there's definitely going to be limits to it. You're definitely not going to run AI ML um, at the edge, you know, on an I3. Um, and so um, it's just not going to happen. Um, you know, even if you demonstrate it in the lab, um, and so for us, we're really just looking for uh, those newer weapon systems or those weapon systems that are going through um, hardware um, upgrades 
and looking at, you know, what is the state of, you know, what is the state of the art in the hardware landscape that's going to enable you to do things on the software end that were otherwise impossible. That's fantastic insights into what, you know, we have an audience that's really thinking a lot about that future operational environment. And I think that the touch points and really the tension points between that hardware and software is pretty interesting in terms of what that means for how we employ it, uh, even for just combined arms maneuver, it's going to be extremely important. Um, so I, I think this is interesting. You're, you know, you're working with a lot of coders and programmers and, and they're a varied bunch. So how do you deal with leading this, this group of personalities and then still making the work really standardized? I think the, the hardest thing to lead um, is, is, is somebody who already knows the direction they need to go um, and trying to force them to go in a direction where they shouldn't. Um, and so I actually find this uh, quite easy, um, mainly because we, we don't bring you in unless you've bought off in the vision and are passionate about the direction we're going. Um, and so for the most part, it, it runs itself. Um, it doesn't take a lot, you know, every now and then you have to, you know, um, you know, nudge in, in a certain direction. Um, but for the most part, anyone who's seen me uh, knows that my, my day-to-day life is filled with just about nothing. Um, and so uh, the entire organization mostly runs on, you know, autopilot. Um, occasionally we'll come in, um, obviously as a government person, I'm doing a lot of uh, HR and contracting stuff. Um, but the technical direction of the team, which we have awesome, amazing technical experts, they work together, um, they set the initial technical direction, and then it's really just up to us to, uh, to provide care and feeding to make sure it doesn't go away. Doesn't have much going on. That's going on your evaluation. Got it. Okay. Uh, no, no, that's 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 super interesting. I think um, there was an interesting point made by that in the book, um, Good to Great, and they talked a lot about um, this idea that they could retrain people in terms of skills and, and tradecraft and things like that. Um, but it was very difficult if you had the wrong people in place. I think that's that's actually so that's a fantastic book. Um, if, if, if people haven't read it, would highly recommend it. Um, but I think that really captures what we're trying to build is that uh, too many too many times in the DoD when when a program has success, especially an innovation program, it's always personality driven. Um, and so how do you scale? something that is just inherently a personality-driven type of culture or, or feeling, um, our solution there is to just continuously find those personalities and then just pluck them and then add them to the team. Um, and so because it can't just be, you know, one or two or three people, you know, it needs to be the entire team. And so we, we obsessively go after these folks that want to be here and we obsessively find those personalities that if left un- unattended, they'd find a way to make it work uh, whether we were here or not. And directors everywhere just blocked your number uh, so you don't poach all their great people. No, that's that's a fantastic approach to gathering talent and having a true catalyst for your organization. Um, so speaking of people um, and HR, if I tomorrow, if I could give you 100 new people for Platform One, what would you do with them? What kind of what kind of people would you need? That is uh, that is a great um, great great question. Um, I would say what we need right now is folks focused on education, training, and onboarding. Um, and if we had a plus up of a hundred folks, it would be to better document the things that we're doing and to have a hundred people 
who can provide a lot more TLC to the organizations we're working with. Um, because in general, we're, we're pretty small and we have a lot of awesome partners, but we don't always have um, you know, all the resources to go around and just literally embed with them. And so I would say if we plussed up 100 folks, uh, we would love to just make them experts on what we're doing and then just send them out to the entire force um, just to help people along their paths and whatever they're struggling with. No, that's fantastic. So five years ago, uh, we were still a force that was very focused on counterinsurgency, uh, counterterrorism. Um, and it's still a focus, some, something that we have to consider. We still have you know, uh, presence around the world. But five years ago, people weren't talking nearly as much about emerging technologies, um, AI, robotics, autonomy, and all the future. Um, but this is one of my favorite questions because of that. What are we missing? What is, what is the DOD missing right now? If you were, if, if Rob was chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, what do we need to focus on right now? I'm going to send this to General Milley, by the way. So uh, I would say uh, acquisition of talent and retention of that talent. The DOD blows my mind at how awesome everyone is. Um, but as, as many of us know, it's really hard to retain folks once they get the skills that, that they really require to do their jobs effectively. And as everyone becomes part of this digital force, um, that's only gonna become more true. And so I know there's a number of initiatives that the DOD is working on in order to help with that retention rate, but I'm not sure it's moving fast enough. Um, what I see is you know, there's this counterbalance and we've actually had folks um, tell us just straight up that, hey, you can't have my person because they're going to go work for you for six months and then they're going to, to disappear and go work somewhere else, which happens all the time. It's not 100%, but it, it's probably you know, 30, 40 um, percent of the time. Um, but it doesn't mean people shouldn't still do it. Um, but they should also recognize that that's, that's a serious issue that, that as an enterprise, we need to sort of figure out is how do you, once you, you know, first of all, how do you acquire the talent, which I, I honestly do think we do an okay job, um, or at least uh, when you're first joining, um, but maybe how do you pull people later in their careers? I know we have our HQE um, positions which can be used, but I don't think there's either enough of them or other mechanisms to where you can take somebody out from industry and, and pull them in for maybe, you know, three years assignment. And for the folks that are currently, you know, uh, GS, um, currently active duty, or currently a, a contractor focused on this mission area, when they could be focused somewhere else, um, how, do you, how do you make sure that five years from now, if they're talented, that they still want to still work here? No, I think that's a crazy important point because um, I know the National Commission for AI right now um, is really looking at how do, how do we change onboarding um, so that we can have more uh, entrance ramps for people to come on and help us. There's lots of people out there um, that we talk to all the time who want to help DOD. They want to be a part of the solution. They want to help national security, um, but we got to figure out how we can bring them on. I think that's a fantastic point. Okay, so... We talk a lot on our podcast about the future, right? So we're thinking about a future operational environment um, and looking out into that time frame. You know, we're talking to future programmers and coders. They're in high school, middle school, or even like my kids, six and nine years old in elementary school right now. What advice would you give them? Why, why would they want to work in this field? From a mission perspective, I don't think it gets any better than this. Um, you know, what you do is, is incredible. And, and I have a lot of friends that, that work on cool stuff. 
Um, but, you know, it's things like skateboards um, with motors in them and, you know, uh, random applications, which I've also worked. Um, but there, there's something to be said about uh, protecting the nation. Um, there's something to be said about working towards a common cause. Um, that is the DOD strength. Um, is that, you know, we, we may not always, you know, pay the best, uh, the work conditions and environment may not, may not always be the best, but, but the mission is, is, you know, above and beyond one of the coolest, if not the coolest um, that, that exists out there. Um, that sort of, you know, mission obsessed culture um, is, is something I think that we can, um, we can leverage. And, and for everybody who's sort of growing up, just getting inspired uh, by all of the, the history that, that is, you know, the awesomeness of everything we do here. And, you know, it doesn't have to even be software based, but just looking at history through World War One, World War II, um, you know, the entire history of, of the U.S., I think, can actually inspire people to say, hey, I really love software, um, but I am really inspired by everything that this country stands for. How can I sort of effectively do both? How can I work with software, um, but still, you know, help the nation? That, I think I think that's a fantastic point. So I want to transition to what we call kind of our rapid fire questions. We ask all our podcast guests, um, but take your time on these. First, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? I definitely say AI ML um, and uh, you know the, the the rate and expansion of growth, uh, and mostly externally. Um, and 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 if I could elaborate on that, that there definitely is a significant disadvantage. That, that the country has and that most people aren't bilingual, um, which, which was fine from a scientific perspective for many years because the scientific language of choice for, for most publications is English. Um, however, that is increasingly no longer um, becoming the case, especially in the AI ML uh, fields. And so if you look at the publications you know, across nations like China, um, you'll see a rapid increase in publications. Um, the fact that I can't read Chinese um, and somebody can post a AI ML paper about potentially this groundbreaking new process, um, yet that same scientist or researcher probably does know English. And, and if I post a paper, um, they can read it. Um, to me, presents a significant disadvantage. Um, and so until our, from a machine learning perspective, um, we can read everything within the scientific community at, at a sort of on par standpoint, um, it definitely, uh, you know, definitely keeps me up, uh, you know, maybe not very often, but maybe like once every other year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, this one's, uh, this kind of gives us a little more insights into our guests and not necessarily just the topic, but what is something about you that you'd be willing to share live on the air uh, that most people might not know? Oh my gosh, this is, you know, my, my crowning uh, achievement in, in all my entire life. Um, I can hold my breath for for more than sixty seconds on 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 the average day, which which maybe isn't that long. Starting but. in five, four. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that's I think that's a first, a, a, a human trick. We I don't think we've had uh, somebody bring that up. Do you think you could do seventy five seconds? What do you think? I, I I think I could do two minutes, but I don't want to say wow. too many. Wow! Wow! Bold. Okay. All right. So <laughs> so. The last question, I love this one because it really, it makes people get a better understanding of our guest. What is your favorite movie? Okay, that's also good. Um, I would say, see, it's hard to select one. I'm definitely a Star Wars nerd. 
Um, and so I would just say that the, the entire series, uh, for all of its ups and downs, I think is just uh, super awesome to be a part of. And so I would say that the, the Star Wars series versus just any particular, um, just one movie. We'll, we'll allow that. We can allow that. We usually get several answers. So it's a, it's a tough question to narrow it down. So, you know, Rob, what, what else would you say to our audience that you would want them to know or understand about Platform One uh, or, or just about the future of software in general? I think the biggest thing is just to recognize that this is an ecosystem um, and an ecosystem that we're all a, all a part of um, and to just continue to, to reach out to folks, continue to, look, to, to learn with folks. Uh, this is DevSecOps has been the most joint thing I've ever been a part of. Um, mainly because the, the people that you meet um, all have very similar, the same problems, um, they have the same vision. And so to, to me, the key is collaboration. Uh, when you have a breakthrough, um, celebrate it, but immediately after the celebration, find ways to share it with the rest of the community um, and, and find a way to integrate it. Um, our role isn't to, you know, at Platform One, is it to always have the breakthroughs. Like relatively speaking, you know, we're organization with 190 people there's 100,000 software developers across the DoD. Uh, we're actually, if you were an organization, we would be the largest software organization on the planet. Um, and yet everybody knows that we're terrible at software. Um, you know, I'd like that to not be true five years from now. Um, and I think the way we get there is just that way when anybody has a breakthrough to do everything we can to share it. Um, on the platform one side, we don't go after anything that can't be shared. Um, many times what you see is that there's a breakthrough within one program office, but they're not yet really funded to make that an enterprise capability. And by focusing on making it an enterprise capability, they actually induce a lot of risk because it's really not one of their, you know, quote, requirements. You know, at Platform One, our requirements are to make things enterprise solutions. So as you have these breakthroughs, like share them with the community, share them with us. We'd love to learn. We'd love to figure out how do we take this awesome thing that you just pioneered and spread it to everybody else. No, that's that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing, Rob. Um, where can they follow Platform One at? Where where can they get in contact and and where can they follow you? Yeah, so uh, best way is is LinkedIn, uh, and so uh, we we post all our announcements there, all our new products, uh, things like the summit. Um, and so if you ever want to know what's going on, you can you can start there. Uh, we will be having a sort of rebirth of our intro to DevSecOps course um, here in the couple, uh, next couple of weeks. We used to offer them live in person in Colorado Springs. Uh, due to COVID, we stopped that, um, but we will be offering virtual um, sort of uh, you know occasions uh, here pretty soon. Rob, thank you so much. That'll that'll pretty much do it for the Army Mad Scientist podcast. Thanks for listening to the Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Major Rob Slaughter, Director of DoD Platform One. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.